Thank you for joining us at Praise Chapel Paramount. We hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday sermon series, The Table. In this series, we focus on the seat we all have access to at the Lord's table, as well as the community around us. Also, we'd love to hear what God has done in your life. To share your story, email us at info at pcparamount.org. Again, we hope you enjoy this message. Praise God. You can be seated. We appreciate all of you being here this morning. Are you glad you're here today? So I want you to repeat this to someone. Turn to someone and say, you're in the right place at the right time. All right. Come on. Give God a big clap offering today. We appreciate all of you being here. We're going to have a great time this morning. Looking forward to what the Lord's going to do here today. We had a wonderful time in our earlier service, and I just enjoyed that time, and I'm looking forward to what God's going to do today. We are in this series called The Table, as you can see the table back here, and I think I think we need to probably move it up a little bit, guys. Uh, somebody forgot to move it up, so if we can do get a few guys up here to move it up a little bit. And really what we're talking about in Luke chapter 14, uh, we started the series a few weeks back, and the series was basically, uh, don't pay attention to them, look at me, okay? So uh, look, everybody's looking like, well, they're not going to drop the glass, and if they do, they will pay for it. But anyway, uh, Luke chapter 14 deals with Jesus. He's telling them to come to this table, and he's saying that we have a big banquet. In fact, Luke chapter 14 talks about so many, uh, Jesus is at a feast. He's at uh, somebody's house eating, and in his illustration, he says, when you come to the feast, don't sit at the place of honor. Sit at the very lowest seat so that God can call you up to the higher seat. And the illustration is many times we think we better, we're better than we really are. And he said, you need to recognize your place because compared to God, we're far down there. Let him call you up to a place of honor because he's inviting everyone to the table. There is a seat for everyone. As long as you come with humility, as long as you come acknowledging who's at the head of the table. Am I right? And he's saying, come. And he's, ta- he's calling everybody out, the broken, those that uh, are lost, in fact, the Bible says that when the invitation went out to the first people, that they, they said yes, but when it came out again that it was now ready, people refused to come. And so Jesus said, you know what? Invite those that are on the highway and the hedges and those that are, are lost and invite them to come that my house may be filled. And how many realize that's us? And he said, come, bring, come and come to my table. So Jesus is welcoming everyone, whoever you are. Maybe you're far from God right now. God's saying you're welcome to the table. Maybe you haven't been connected with God for a while and you kind of fell, follow, fallen away. God is saying, come to the table. Whatever the condition of your life may be right now, God is saying, come back to the table. In fact, turn to someone and say, come back to the table. And in fact... Coming back to the table has a lot to do with uh, uh, the scriptures. Uh, we find it in the Old Testament at the, at, the, at the time of Passover, and we also find it at the communion table. In fact, uh, at the end of the service here, we're going to take communion together. So all of us are going to do that. Also, again, I'm excited in two weeks. Now, obviously, next week is Father's Day. And again, let me just say this about Father's Day. Even if you are not, you know, your kids don't have a father, you're a mom that both rows, you know, you're a mom and a dad, bring your children because we have a heavenly father. So I'm going to talk about 
uh, our physical father, but we're also going to talk about a heavenly father that loves you. So bring your kids. Often I find a lot of the single mothers don't want to bring their kids on Father's Day. You bring them. Hallelujah. Because they're the heavenly father that loves them. Don't stay home. You bring them here and let God minister to them. Uh, but also in two weeks, I'm looking forward to the graduation Sunday and all of these graduates, we're looking forward to that. And uh, I know a number of people that have just recently graduated. In fact, the other day I was talking to someone about uh, them going through exams. They have to go through the final exams and they have to study in order to get through this exam. And I was talking to one guy in particular and he said, you know what, Pastor, I, I, um, I took an elective and I thought it was going to be easy. And I said, what elective was that? He goes, ornithology. And I go, ornithology, what is that? And he goes, that's the study of birds, study of birds. I go, birds? And he goes, yeah. He goes, I thought it was an easy A. Then I found out it was more difficult than I thought. And so he goes, then I had to study really hard. He goes, I was studying so hard because, I, you know, I had to remember all these things about all these different birds. And, and he goes, so I studied really hard, especially the night before. I came to the final exam, and the professor, he put up a, a PowerPoint, and there were uh, different birds and 25 sets of bird legs, just the legs. And the professor said, I want you to identify every bird by their legs. I said, what happened? He goes, I was so mad because I was studying about the habitat. I was studying about, you know, their beaks and their feathers and all these different things. And, and he said, no, you have to identify them by their legs. And he goes, I got so mad. I said, this is not fair. He told the, the first professor, it's not fair. This is not right. I studied so hard. And the professor said, I'm sorry. You're going to be graded by that and that alone. If you don't take this exam, you're going to fail. And he goes, I slammed the book down on the table. I said, you know what? He goes, I'm going to the academic office. I'm going to file a complaint because this is wrong. And he's walking away, and the professor, professor said, wait a minute, what's your name? And he lifted up his leg, and he said, you tell me what my name is. <laughs> tell me what my name is. Look at that. It's not true, you know. <laughs> How's you going, though, huh? Tell me what my name is. <laughs> Yeah, one of those corny jokes, but it worked, it worked. But often exams, you know, really don't, <laughs> they don't really tell us what really is inside. But there, there are a couple of exams that really tell us what's going on inside of us. And if you've ever taken, uh, one of the things that kind of scares me a little bit, it's not the blood, okay, but it's the blood test. It's not the fact of blood or, the, or them, you know, pricking your skin. But a blood test really tells you what's going on inside of you. You can feel fine on the outside. I've met a lot of people that, man, I was feeling fine. Then they went and took a blood test. And you start finding out, you know, certain organs aren't functioning right. Your thyroid, your kidney, different. Your blood tells you a lot about what's going on inside of you. So often when I take a blood test, I want, man, hallelujah, just I want a good results. Because a blood test really tells you what's going on inside of you not how you feel on the outside. And so this morning, I'm going to preach a message, kind of a blood test. It's really going to tell what's going on inside of you. Can I get a little heavy this morning? And so I, I told you that lighter joke because I'm, I'm setting you up for something heavy this morning. We're going to hit home because we're going to take some blood tests today. 
not literally, okay? Don't get scared. But I'm, what I'm talking, I'm going to address some issues that I think sometimes, uh, a lot of times we think we're better than we really are. And God has a way of exposing those things in our hearts. In fact, today I'm going to talk about the table of betrayal. Now, most of us, when we sit at the table, we're not expecting our betrayer to be at the table. We're not expecting those that are going to deny us to be at the table. In fact, most of the time when you eat or you go have a meal with someone, you, you usually are with people you're connected with, with people that you enjoy, with people that got your back, with people that are your best friends. And so you sit at the table with the knowledge of everyone on this table is for you. But what if you came to a table and everybody on that table was against you? And you knew it. What would you do? How would you handle it? This is so powerful because that is this picture of the Last Supper. Jesus is at the table with all of these disciples. And, of course, in particular, we know that one of, them, one of the disciples betrayed him by the name of Judas. We also know that Peter is the one that denied him three different times on the same night. And often we look at that and we say, I, would, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done, done this. I, I would have stood for God. But you may say that today, but you weren't under the pressure they were under at that time. So I'm going to give you an illustration or I'm going to preach out of the book of Matthew because I'm going to go to a different gospel. If you're familiar with the gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are four different accounts and different perspectives of disciples of the life of Jesus. And each of them portray Jesus in a different way. Uh, and they, you know, one looks at him as a servant, another one looks at him as a king, a, a god, and all these different things. They give their perspective. It'd be like if you were at a corner of an intersection, there was an accident. If you were on this side of the corner, you would see it at a different angle. You saw the same accident, but you saw a different angle. Each of them give you a different angle on the life of Christ. And Matthew here really gives us a great picture of who Jesus is and what happens in this particular uh, chapter, in Matthew chapter 26, if you want to turn there, we'll put it up on the screen. But I want to pray before I go on for just a moment. Is that all right? So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that your word is relevant, that your word is powerful, and that it applies in 2019 and every aspect of our lives today. Open up our hearts and mind, remove all of the noise pollution and all the, the distractions that even our phones could be a distraction. Even all these pop-ups can be a distraction. God, help us not to be distracted by that, but to give you our 100% undivided attention and focus on the word. And Lord, today anoint my lips as I declare the word of God. And Father, they would hear the voice behind the voice in Jesus' name. And the people said... Amen. So out of the book of Matthew, I'm going to kind of break it down here. Matthew chapter 26, verse 6. It says, while Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. If you read some of the other gospels, again, we don't have time to go into that. But he had healed this particular, uh, this particular man by the name of, uh, of Simon. He had leprosy. So he's at his house. And as he's there in verse, 20, in verse 7, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar or a very expensive perfume. 
And so she comes to the house, and uh, the other gospels say that it was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. If you remember Mary's uh, a brother, uh, um, Lazarus, who had been dead four, four days, and Jesus raised him from the dead. So she comes with this very expensive perfume. It's called an alabaster jar. And the Bible says she poured it on the head of Jesus as Jesus is sitting at the table talking Unexpectedly, this woman comes and she begins to pour this oil or this expensive perfume over the head of Jesus and it begins to flow down. And everybody in the house, obviously, you have this expensive perfume. It began to, the aroma of that perfume went to fill the whole house. It got everybody's attention. Everybody uh, turned around to see, to smell this perfume. It's very, very expensive. And in verse number 8, it says, When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Or in other words, they were angry or annoyed by it. And they made this statement, why this waste? How many know whenever you give something to God, it's never a waste? Whenever you make a sacrifice to God, it is never a waste. But the Bible says, why this waste? Then they said, we might have been able to sell this particular, uh, we could have sold this. Uh, uh, this might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. And many estimate that uh, that particular uh, alabaster jar was probably worth $10,000. I don't know if you've ever been around a perfume bottle that's worth $10,000. I'd be nervous around that thing. And you definitely don't want your wife around that thing either. So don't touch that bottle. But anyway, here they got this expensive perfume, and they pour it over Jesus. And the, if you notice what they say, they say they. In other words, all of them were in objection to what this woman had done. Another gospel in particular said it was Judas that spoke up. But if you really begin to read it with the consensus of all the disciples together, with the common consensus of all the disciples together, that they were mad over what happened, it was Judas that spoke up. Judas was the one that said, why this waste? Why, why did we do this? We could have spent this money and given it to the poor. And verse number 10, Jesus said this, aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? I mean, why are you so thee? Why are you involved in this? What she has done is a noble thing. It's a good thing for me. He said, you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. He's not saying to neglect the poor. He's saying basically not, you're not going to have this opportunity all the time. And he said, you know, you're worried about all this, but uh, you're, you're, you're missing the moment. You're missing a unique moment. And then he adds this in verse 12, by pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for my burial. Because Jesus knew he would die soon. And she was already preparing his body for that. Verse 13. Then he says, truly I tell you, wherever the gospels proclaim in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So he says, you know what? When this thing comes back up again, you're going to be noted as dumb for missing the moment. But she's going to be recognized as wise for taking advantage of the moment. Are you with me? 
So he's saying here, she did something wise, she did something good. And in verse 14, then one of the 12, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me if I hand them over to you? So they weighed out, what, 30 pieces of silver. He sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And verse 16, and from that time on, what happened? He started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Now, we often wonder why didn't they just arrest Jesus when he was out in the open? Because it would have caused the riot. It would have caused the commotion. In the evening time, Jesus would go and stay somewhere privately where nobody else knew where he was going because a mob might have came. You know, even a man of God needs to rest. Even a man of God needs to refresh because he's constantly pouring out. So he needs to go home and rest. And so what Jesus would do is that they would find a place privately where nobody knew because they didn't want the mob. They didn't want every, everybody to come and disturb them. He needed some private time. Are you with me? And so they would, they would go somewhere where nobody knew. So they needed an inside man. And his name was Judas Iscariot. And Judas said, hey, what would you give me if I betray him? And they said 30 pieces of silver. Then we jump down to verse 21. While they were eating. So now we're at the Last Supper. And they're all sitting at the table. And Jesus makes this statement, while they were sitting together, while they were eating, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Deeply distressed, each one of them began to say, surely not I, Lord. I want you to put that picture of the Last Supper up there. And if if you're familiar with this picture, you probably already know who Judas is. Judas is the guy that spills the salt right there. And they put that salt there because salt is bad luck. And so they show it. And then you can kind of look at, you know, he, he's kind of had that sinister eyes. You know, he kind of looks, you know, he looks suspicious. Am I right? I mean, look, look at the guy. And so a lot of us, when we think of Judas, he looked like that suspicious guy. You know, he's the guy in the church that had the black hoodie, you know, and he goes out and smokes dope at night and all that. Then he comes back in church. No, I'm just kidding. But he, he has that. He has that. He has that look. And often we profile Judas as the sinister-looking guy. And so when Jesus made this statement, we often think everybody on the table goes, obviously it's this guy over here. But no, Judas was actually the most trusted disciple. If you look at the picture, he has the money bag. And that money bag is, he, he was the treasurer. If you look closely there, there's the money bag in his hand. He was the most trusted disciple of all of them. And so he was the most trusted. Nobody, let me just tell you this, none of the disciples <clears throat> suspected that it would be Judas who would be the one that would betray Jesus. You do not give your money to your accountant if you don't trust him. So he was trusted by everybody. And the Bible said they were all surprised by what he said. And they made this statement, Lord, is it I? They all began to kind of feel a little uncomfortable. Like, you you can't mean one of, you can't mean me. And then verse 23 said, he replied, the one who dipped his hand with me in this bowl will betray me. In John's account, if you read the gospel of John, he he dips the, 
the bread and the bull, and he gives it to Judas. And a lot of us are sitting there when we read it, we think, well, it was obviously Judas, but you don't have to, you have to realize this. Whenever the hostess gave a piece of bread to someone, that was the most honored guest. He was honoring his traitor, his betrayer in front of everybody. They didn't catch on that Jesus was giving him, saying that he was the one. Jesus wasn't pointing him out. There's a lot of conversation going on at the table. In fact, in one of the other gospels, the Bible says that uh, Judas left and, and Jesus told him, go out and do what you have to do. Go out and do it quickly. And many of the disciples thought that Jesus had gave him some instructions to do. So nobody really suspected that it was Judas. In verse 24, and Jesus said this, The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him had he not even been born. Jesus is pointing out this whole situation here in this conversation with 12 guys. He says, man, there's judgment coming on this man. And in verse 25, Judas had the audacity. His betrayer replied, surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said, you have said it, he told him. And again, there's so much conversation going on that people aren't really catching on or the other disciples are not catching on that it is Judas that would be the one that would betray Jesus at that table. But yet it's unique to me to think that Jesus is sitting at the table. He gave him bread. He, he, they, he ate with him knowing, knowingly, uh, realizing that this was the man that would betray him. And maybe I, I even thought maybe uh, Judas was kind of second-guessing. Maybe he, that's why he said, that I, maybe he didn't want to go through with it, but of course we know that he did. Now here's the blood test. Are you ready for this? First thing I want to talk about Judas is Judas represents you and I. Oh, that's the blood test. I'm just being honest with you. Today, I'm going to talk about how Judas, my first part of this message, how Judas represents you and I. Matthew here in the book of Matthew is telling us how really we need to see ourselves in the story. In fact, can I be honest with you? We're represented in every single one of those disciples. We have doubted. Am I right? There have been times where we were frustrated with Jesus. Every one of the disciples had attitudes. When you really look at yourself, you need to see yourself at the table. And today I'm going to focus on Judas, but I'm going to focus on the other disciples as well. But in particular, I'm going to talk about Judas. The second thing I'm going to explore is how, why did Judas betray Jesus? And you're going to find that it's the same reasons why people are betraying Jesus today. So first of all, if you're taking notes, I'm going to just, I want to say this, is we all, all of us represent Judas. The Bible says again, if I go back to the beginning of Matthew, of Matthew 26, that they were all mad. They were all upset that this woman was pouring out this perfume on Jesus. They were indignant. They were annoyed. They couldn't believe that it was wasted on Jesus. So all of them were mad. It was only Judas that spoke up. With only Judas that said anything about it. And so when Jesus said, uh, someone here will betray me, really it was more of a question. 
If you really get into the Greek of it, he's talking about there's someone here that's going to sell me out. Someone here is going to sell me out. Someone here is going to turn me over for a price. Someone here is going to sell me out. Not just one of you, if you really want to think about it, but all of them sold out Jesus that day. In fact, I'll jump down to verse 31 of Matthew 26. Look at what Jesus said. Then Jesus said to them, tonight all of you will fall away. And really, all of you, what that means, fall away, all of you will abandon me. All of you will turn against me. All of you, is what he's saying, will be ashamed of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and what will happen? The sheep and the flock will be scattered. So we may not sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, but all of us have a price. How many remember the, the million-dollar man, the wrestler? <laughs> Every man has a price. <laughs> I did that pretty good, didn't I? Ted DiBiaschi. Anyway, he would, he would have all the money, you know. Uh, you guys, you millennials have no idea what I'm talking about. You got to go, you got to YouTube it, I guess. The million-dollar man, he was a wrestler, and he would talk about the money, and he had all this money. Every man had the price. And I was thinking about this story about this particular woman who was really boasting about how good she was and how, you know, she was really good and did all this. And so this man comes to her and says, uh, will you sleep with me for $1 million? And she said, well, I, I suppose I would for $1 million. And the man said, would you sleep with me for $10? She said, what kind of woman do you think I am? He said, we've already established that. We're just negotiating the price right now. See, every man has the price. See, what are we willing to sell out for our ethics and our morals? What are we willing to trade away for all of those things? And look at if we go even further in verse, uh, uh, Matthew 26, verse 33, Peter told him, even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Never say never. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, tonight before the rooster crow, you will not deny me just one time, but three times. And then Peter said, even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And look at what it said. And all the disciples said what? The same thing. See, everybody at that table denied Jesus. Everybody at that table was a betrayer. Everybody at that table was a traitor. Every man has his price. All of us this morning have sat in that seat and we have compromised our values. We are compromised our ethics for what we thought uh, was a better value. And friend, I want you to realize something. Peter even has the big talk, and he says, I'll die for you, Lord. I'll give my life for you. It doesn't matter what it takes. I'm willing to lay it on the line for you. We could talk a big talk, can't we? But when the pressure's on, how is it then? Can I make a confession of the pastor? Come on, can I just confess? I'm going to confess anyway, because either you're convicted or I don't know what's going on, but... But I remember talking a big talk. You know, I, we can talk big talk even as a pastor. You know, I'm willing to do this, do that. But, man, when the pressure's on, it's hard. So I remember my first, one of my first mission trips to Kenya, Africa. 
It was right, right around 2000, 2001, and it was just a few years after the United States Embassy had been bombed in Kenya. There was a lot of tension, a lot of commotion going on in that, in that country. And I, the first time I ever was in Kenya, never been to Kenya before, me and a couple other pastors arrived. We arrived there. We met some uh, other uh, local pastors that were there, and, and we, we had, you know, some cash that we needed to exchange for uh, Kenyan money. So they said, we'll take you down to downtown Nairobi. So we go into downtown Nairobi. We get out of the car, and all of a sudden, all these people are running. It's like a riot, man. I'm thinking, what am I doing here? Why am I here? I'm a father, man. I'm a pastor. I, I, why did I come to Kenya today? And everybody's running, and they, they, there's this man, and they just start beating this man up. And everybody's running and kicking this man. And I, I'm, I'm going, what is going on? And I'm looking like these pastors, like, hey, what are we going to do? And they said, no, he's a thief. And they're, they're, set, they're taking justice out on him. I said, what about the police? They go, they're not going to wait for the police. And all of them begin to beat this man. They moved us out of the way, and they went into the bank, and, and they just said, let's just go, let's go. And so when we came back out, I could see across the street there was a dead body, and that man was just laying there. It was, it was over. It almost, it almost looked like a rag doll. And he goes, don't get close. He goes, these people are mad. And I said, get me out of here, man. And then as we're driving to the church, they start telling us how some, they had burned some people there. They, what they call them necklacing. They put a, a tire around them and burn people alive. And I'm thinking, what am I doing here? Is there tickets? Let's find some tickets online and get out of here. Are you hearing me? See? See how the pressure is? Come on, let's be honest. I, I know you're, you're a lot more courageous than I am. I know that. But, but me, I, I was thinking, I, I need to get out. See, when we're under pressure, things change, don't they? When we're under pressure, we're not as righteous as we think we are. We're not as good as we think we are. What is your price? We got to take a blood test today. It may not be as dramatic as Judas, but I want you to know there's time that we'll trade things away for convenience. Because it's not convenient, we'll stop doing it. Because it's not convenient, we won't represent Christ at our work. We'll downplay our Christianity. People ask you, where'd you go this weekend? Well, uh, yeah, I was with the family. Yeah, I was with the kids. You won't tell me you were at church. You'll downplay your commitment to Christ. You won't tell them, you know, I, I, I went to church today. I gave my life to Jesus. I've been serving God. See, we'll compromise. What's your price? See, we'll downplay certain things in our walk with us. We'll sell out because it's inconvenient in our lives. We'll say, well, you know what? I, I don't really want to change some things in my life right now. God's dealing with you over some things that you need to give up. You need to surrender. But you say, no, no, I'm not. I'm not. You'll, you'll sell out for those things, but not for God. You're, you'll sell out. You're, you're living with a girlfriend or a boyfriend right now. And you won't leave that, and you won't make it right with God. You'll sell that boyfriend, that girlfriend now for Christ. Can I be real? Maybe that particular habit, maybe it's a drug addiction, maybe it's alcohol, whatever it could be. We'll sell that, sell that, sell that out for Christ. Because why? We don't want it to be, we don't want it to get in the way of what we're doing. See, what is our price? We won't raise our level of commitment. 
we won't get baptized. You know why? Because, man, now you're getting real serious. No, man, I'm not going to get baptized. No, no, that's because you know it's another level of commitment. And you say, no, it's not convenient for me. See, the whole thing is this. All of us, again, Judas represents you and I. Sure, maybe you haven't actually denied him this way or you haven't traded him away for 30 pieces of silver and all these things. But when the pressure's on, we're willing to sell out for anything. One of the things I realized as a Christian, and I realized today even as a pastor, that it's been some of the, some of the things that in my life that God has put in my life that he's graced me with, some favors that other people didn't have in their life. See, sometimes we're thinking, well, I'm better than that person. I have never done what they did. But, but you had some privileges they didn't have. You know, I often, again, I'm not making excuses for people, but I often, I talk to people that have been in prison and drug addiction and committed some pretty bad crimes. And when you first hear it, you say, man, they were, they were some bad people. Why did they make those bad choices? But, but then you begin to find out that they grew up in an abused family, that they grew up without a mom and a dad. And again, I'm not excusing their behavior. They didn't have some of the graces that I had. See, I grew up with a mom and dad. My mom and dad had been married to the day my dad died. I didn't grow up in a divorced family. So I often think, had I been under their circumstances, under their pressure, maybe I ended up the same way. See, we're not as righteous as we think we are. We're not better than other people the way you think you are because you've been graced with some things they weren't graced with. So before you start tooting your horn, you better take a blood test. Because there's some things in your life. Let me just give you an example. I just heard this the other day, and I thought it was such a great example. Let's just say you and your friend were going to go rob a bank. So you and your friend say, hey, let's go rob a bank. Before you go rob the bank, you stop at another friend's house, and you tell him what you're doing. This friend says, oh, no, I'm not going to let you do that. And so he grabs you both by the shirt. You begin to have this tug of war. Your other friend escapes, but this guy holds you here. And you can't leave. He goes, no, I'm not letting you go, man. I'm restraining you here today. You're not going. That other guy goes. He robs the bank. He gets caught. He gets 25 years to life, armed robbery, all that stuff. And you sit here and you say, man, I'm glad I didn't do what he did. But the issue is you had grace. Somebody restrained you. It was in your heart just like it was in his heart, but somebody stopped you. Can I tell you something? That is the restraining grace of God. He's the one that's helped you. Stop taking credit for things you don't deserve any credit for. We take a lot of credit for things. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. It was the grace of God, my friend. It wasn't you to begin with. All this stuff that's happened in your life, you didn't do it on your own anyway. Man, it was the grace of God that restrained your life, that held you there. If it wasn't for the grace of God, you might have done a lot more things. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For you are saved by grace through faith, and that, that is not from yourselves. What? It is God's gift, not from works. So that no one can boast. You know what grace means? It means unmerited favor. It means a gift of God that you did not deserve. 
It said we're saved by grace through faith. In other words, your faith, your simple faith in God has got you, amen, his grace covering you, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of work, lest anyone should boast. So here's many times how we picture it. Can I just be real this morning? This is how we, we picture it many times. Many times we picture ourselves, uh, we're, we're, you know, the, when God found me, I was swimming out there, and I swam to Jesus. Go ahead and put that picture up. I swam to Jesus, and it was Jesus there that, 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 that I swam to him, and he got me out of the water. And we picture ourselves that way. And he pulled us out of the water. You put that other picture. He pulled us out of the water. And we say, man, man, I swam to him. And then he pulled me out. And that's how, we, we, that's how he rescued me. Can I tell you how the real picture was? You weren't swimming. You were face down in the water. You were dead. See that picture? You were dead. You were face down in the water. You weren't swimming to anybody. And when he got you out of the water, guess what he did? He did spiritual CPR on you right there. You see that? He revived you. You were dead, and he revived you. You, had, you weren't even alive when he found you. See, that's, that's how you have to picture it. Because many times we have the wrong perception. I was swimming out to him. I came to him. He lifted an old friend. You were dead. You were face down. You didn't have anything to do with God. It was his grace that reached down, rescued you, gave you CPR, and revived you. That's, the, that, that's how you have to see your walk with God. Because otherwise you think you're better than you are. See, one of the things that I've told people over and over, and, 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 and the people often ask me, uh, I, I've, been, I've been serving the Lord for 38 years, 38 years, but it's not to my credit. All credit goes to God. So people ask me, so what, people often ask me, what is the key, Pastor? I'll, I'll give you one key. There's many things, but there's one key that I, that I think has helped me is that every day I'm grateful to God for his grace. Every, every day I wake up. This morning I woke up and said, thank you, Lord, I'm alive. Thank you that I'm saved today, that I'm walking with you. Thank you for that gift. So I just have a thankful heart every day, every day. If I stay thankful and grateful, that keeps me saved. Because I remember I was drowning. I was face down. And he got me out of the water, and he gave me CPR. And today I'm alive because of him. The day you forget that is the day you're going back and doing the same old thing you were doing. You know why you're doing the same thing you're doing? Because you're ungrateful. You know why you leave God? Because you're ungrateful. I'm just, I'm just taking the blood test. Can we just take the blood? We're getting on the inside. Taking the blood test right now. We're ungrateful. So I'm going to move on to the next one because it got a little too serious. So the next one is this. Judas. Why did Judas betray Jesus? He betrayed Jesus because he was disappointed with Jesus. Jesus did not meet his expectation. Now, here's the thing. Many of us, when you read the Bible, if you read the gospel, you'll begin to find out that when Jesus came on the scene, they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a Savior, but not in the way that Jesus came. They thought that Jesus was going to come in and he was going to overthrow the Roman government 
he was going to uh, get rid of the rich people, get rid of all these tyrants, and he was going to put the poor people in position. So he's thinking, man, uh, Judas is thinking, he's going to come, man. He's, gonna, he's the king. He's going to conquer this Roman government, and he's going to be the king, and I'm going to be next to him. And when Jesus didn't do that, Judas was disappointed. And, and Judas began to realize, hey, he wants to die. And he's talking about crucifixion. And this is not any, this is not why I started following him. See, a lot of times we're following Jesus for what we could get out of Jesus. Not what we can do for him. What he can give us, not what we can give him. And so this was Judas. So Judas realized right away, no, you know what? Jesus is not meeting my expectation. In fact, throughout the scripture, you'll find that there were people that were disappointed with Jesus when Jesus didn't do what he wanted them to do, and many of them were disappointed. Even John the Baptist, remember John the Baptist was caught in prison, and he's in prison, and he's wondering, how come Jesus hasn't gotten me out of prison? I'm here. You're the Messiah. I told everybody, you're the Son of God. How come you haven't come and rescued me? And he sent a message to Jesus. And the message is this, uh, uh, let us know if you're the one. Or should, in, verse, in Luke chapter 7, when, when, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And in Luke chapter 7, verse 20, it says, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind received the sight. The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is the one who does not stumble out account of me. So he's saying, listen, uh, I'm doing what I said I was going to do. Just because I'm not rescuing you and doing what you want me to do, I'm still God on the throne. God's purpose is still being fulfilled. Just, you know, sometimes we just want God to do what we wanted him to do. God's not your butler. You're not, God's not serving you. You're serving God. And so what happens is uh, even John the Baptist got a little confused. Can I, can I read you another? I, I thought this was crazy. One of my favorite scriptures is this. After Jesus resurrects and he's walking around for 40 days, he, he's resurrected. I mean, the man was dead. He got crucified. He's walking with the disciples for 40 days. And then in, in the book of Matthew, let me see where this chapter is. In the book of Luke, actually, no, uh, book of Matthew, he, he starts to ascend in, into heaven. And the Bible says uh, when he begins to ascend into heaven, let me see where it's at here. Matthew, I think it's Matthew. Um, um, I'm sorry. I, I, I thought I wrote it down. Maybe I didn't. But anyway, in the book of Matthew, he, he's talking to the disciples. And as he's talking to them, the Bible says he begins to ascend into heaven. And the Bible says many worshipped him, and then some doubted. Are you a fool? Jesus is floating in the air. He's leaving. Oh, I doubt it. What? What's that guy, David Blaine or something? That's a David Blaine thing, man. I don't know. I'm not sure. You know why? Because you know why they doubt it? Because Jesus is leaving them and the Roman government is still in power. Hey, Jesus, you mean you're leaving us in charge? I mean, come on, what's going on? Jesus didn't do what they wanted him to do. Are you with me? So many times what happens is we doubt what Jesus wants to do because he's not doing what we want him to do. 
Look at what the Bible says, uh, why the purpose of why Jesus came to do what he did. In Luke chapter 4, it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news of the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord. I mean, this is so powerful. And in verse 22, it says, everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by his gracious word. So everybody's excited about what he just said. But if you read the rest of the chapter, Jesus didn't begin to talk about Elijah. When Elijah came, he came to this woman that was not even Jewish. He said there were many people that had famine and were starving, but he came to a widow woman and helped her out. And he begins to talk about when Jesus came, he only healed one leper, Naaman, who was a, a Gentile. He was, a, he was a, this, a, this, uh, this general from Syria. So he began to talk about how Jesus came or how God healed all these people that they didn't like. And the Bible said they got mad at him. See, I've had people mad at my sermons, but never get so mad at me that, that they want to throw him off a hill somewhere. I've had people mad at my sermons, but I've never had anybody want to throw me off a cliff. And if you read that chapter, Jesus, they're about to throw him off the cliff, and he kind of got away in the midst of them. I always wondered, was that like a Jedi thing, you know, like the droid you're looking for is not here. You know, I don't know if he kind of just kind of went through there, Star Wars fans. Anyway, he kind of went through the midst of them. And as he got, he got away from them all, but what I'm saying to, the, to you is that they didn't like the message he was proclaiming because thank God that God extends grace to outsiders. God extends grace to those that are not worthy. Can you say amen? The Bible says that it's those that, are, those that are healthy don't need a doctor. It's those that are sick. See, Judas wanted a Messiah who would punish evil and reward the righteous. This woman that came to Jesus and anointed his head with oil, she came to a Messiah that she was willing to receive grace because she knew she was not righteous. Judas wanted a Messiah who would bestow power and riches upon him. But this woman came and understood that all she needed was God's grace. See, there's so many differences between the woman that anointed Jesus and Judas and the other disciples that were there. Here's what I want to leave you with today, is that all of us are not as good as we think we are. We need the grace of God. And yet God welcomes us to the table. And I say that to you because whenever you begin to get mad at God, whenever you feel like God has disappointed you and not did what you you wanted him to do, remember that he still welcomes you to the table. And you didn't deserve a seat there to begin with. And so he may not do everything you want him to do. He may not do it the way you want him to do it. But thank God you still get to sit at the table with him. Thank God you have a seat at the table. That he saved your soul. That he touched your life. And if it wasn't for him, you wouldn't even be here today. Thank God today that we all get that seed, and he's so merciful. And sometimes if we think we're, we start looking down at people around, you got to be careful. Stop looking down at people because that could be you. And if it wasn't for his restraining grace and the gifts of grace on your life, it could be you could be that other person. You're supposed to help someone out. 
I was reading, I'm going to end with this, and, and uh, we can have the musician come. But I was reading about this one woman who, who wanted to be a missionary, and that was her heart. She just wanted to be a missionary. And in the in a, in a middle of a conference, she got a call, and it was the blood test. And the blood test came back that she had cancer. Found out she had cancer. Went in and checked. It was a pretty bad diagnosis. And she said she got, she began to get depressed and she began to feel like, what am I going to do now? I wanted to be a, a, a missionary. I wanted to do all these different things. I can't believe that now I got cancer. I'll never be able to go out and do what I wanted to do. But what happened is during her chemo, she was able to slow down, and she began to minister people to people at the cancer ward. She began to minister to her neighbors, and because of her testimony, people become the, came to Christ. Patients began to get saved and give their life to Jesus. And she said, I didn't realize, but God made me a missionary while I had cancer, that I did become that missionary. She goes, all this time I was saying, God, make me a missionary somewhere else. And yet I, it caused me to have cancer. Not God caused it, but cancer came to her. And she said, and it was that cancer that caused her to be a missionary in her neighborhood, her friends, her family. People came to Christ through her testimony. Because even in tragedy, God can make something good out of it. Can you say amen? That's the power of God to do. Hey, thanks for listening to this week's message from Praise Chapel Paramount. If you want to stay connected, follow us online with Facebook and Instagram at PC Paramount or visit our website at praisechapelparamount.com.